I'd like to welcome everyone here today. My name is Samuel Tadros. I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom, and I will moderate what promises to be a very interesting and enlightening conversation and panel. The study of Islamism is, of course, hardly a new phenomenon. Uh, long before the 9-11 attacks, scholars have devoted considerable time and energy to researching and examining the various groups that form Islamism, as well as the ideology itself and the vision it has for the future. Egypt, of course, and its Islamists has been at the center of that conversation and study. This should come as no surprise. Egyptians have played an instrumental role in forming the very nature of Islamism, and Egyptians have played and continue to play an important role in leading some of the most important Islamist organizations worldwide. Yet despite this attention and the, and the, the study that is done on Islamism, especially after 9-11, significant gaps still exist in our knowledge of Egyptian Islamism. One needs only to look at the shock and surprise that scholars and experts had with the rise of Egypt's Salafis following the Egyptian Revolution, how they attempted to explain the Noor Party's performance in Egyptian elections, or how the, they attempted to attribute various actions by the Noor Party and various Salafis, such as their endorsement of Abmina Mabul Fatouh as a presidential candidate, their relationship to the Muslim Brotherhood, and lastly, their support for the overthrow of the Muslim Brotherhood's rule in Egypt and continued support for the current regime. Even the very definition of those Salafis, attempting to define each group and distinguish it from the other, has been problematic. Is the Noor Party activist Salafism or scholarly Salafism? Scholars don't seem to agree on these definitions. These gaps and definitions are, and deficiencies in our knowledge are perhaps due to structural reasons. Following 9-11, the focus of our attention has naturally been on two specific segments of Islamists, namely jihadis of various stripes and the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood and its sister or daughter organizations across the Muslim world. But as a result, a blind spot has emerged between those that are waging jihad against the West and against their own societies and those that participate in politics or are willing to play within the political game. Namely, that gap covers the most important and largest segment of Islamists, namely Salafis. Secondly, a problem has emerged in the way that we approach Islamism itself. We usually approach Islamism with a set of litmus test questions about their position towards minorities. How will women fare in an Islamist society? What is their, will they keep the peace treaty with Israel, for example? And those similar questions. Yet those questions hardly tell us anything about the divisions between the Islamists themselves. They are questions related to us and our interests, and less so to how they view each other and debate each other. For us to attempt to map the Egyptian Islamist scene, 
for us to be able to set the boundaries between the various groups, we need to look not on these questions, although they are important to ask, but on questions that the Islamists themselves are preoccupied with. This is especially true when we notice that Islamists are less focused on debating people in the outside world or even non-Islamists in their own societies as much as they are focused on debating each other. Islamists spend considerable time and energy to debate, fight over which group, which current or individual is more representative of that ideology, of which of them carries the banner of this ideology and by virtue the religion itself. But how are we to draw these boundaries between these groups? A story from the first century of Islam perhaps gives us a bit in, or guides us in how we should approach it. The story goes that Hassan al-Basri was sitting and teaching in his mosque when someone asked the question of whether a man who commits a grave sin is a believer or unbeliever. Basri's answer that the man was a believer that was not satisfactory to his student Wasl ibn Atab. Wasl then stands, argues that the man is actually in a state between belief and unbelief, and takes a side, sits and at another corner of the mosque. Wasl's action that he left the group, that he left Wasl's study, that he left Hassan al-Basri's study circle in Arabic, اعتزلهم, becomes the word to describe the group that is attributed to him, the Mu'tazala, that emerge in the Baghdad of the first and second centuries of Islam. This action and this question, this nature of this division that takes place, is one that continues with us until today. Namely, that a theological political question emerges and by virtue of the different answers, the disagreements over these questions, over that theological political question, then a division within Islamism is created. If we are to understand and draw a map of the Islamist world, not only do we need to define what Islamism is, but more importantly, what are the borders and disagreements between the various Islamist groups and currents. Thus, we need to address those very theological, political questions that occupy the Islamist universe. That universe, of course, is a very complex one. It is not simply divided into Muslim Brotherhood, Salafis, and Jihadis. It is one that sees continued divisions, which I argue are a continuous nature, are in, are in a sense in the very nature of Islamism meaning that each new group is in itself a refutation of previous one. It is an assessment that the previous ones have failed to achieve the Islamist dream of connecting the world with heaven. By this, we can understand how ISIS is a refutation of Al-Qaeda, how it sees itself as a more um, clearer answer to finding finally the formula of achieving the Islamist dream. The Islamist world is divided over this question with no central authority being able to set an answer that everyone agrees to. In an attempt to find answers to these questions, for the past two years I have been 
preoccupied with drawing a map of Egyptian Islamism. The result of this two-year-long study is the two monographs that you find here and that will be available on the Hudson website in PDF format. In the first monograph, Mapping Egyptian Islamism, I map or I profile 128 various groups, currents, and individuals that form the very complex Egyptian Islamist scene. These groups and currents, I give the origins of them, the historical developments, and the main features and arguments that they present. Following each profile of a general group are the profiles of its most important sheikhs, explaining their backgrounds, educations, and key positions. The monograph begins with Madkhali Salafis, moves to scholarly Salafis, activist Salafism, with its four main branches, the Salafi call, Sururis, Cairo's activist Salafis, and revolutionary Salafism, and finally Jihadi Salafis. Next comes profiles of independent Islamist preachers, followed by the phenomena known as televangelists, and then the Muslim Brotherhood, followed by breakaway groups from the Brotherhood, Islamic revival thinkers, and finally a profile of the Salafi TV channels. In the second monograph, Islamist versus Islamist, the theological political questions, I examine the internal dynamics of Islamism in terms of the interrelationship between its various groups and currents and their disagreements on key theological political questions. I chose the questions covered based on their importance to the Islamists themselves and their political implications. The nine chapters focus on specific questions ranging from the methodology of change adopted to the question of how do we deal with rulers that rule by other than what God has revealed, i.e. do not implement Sharia, to the question of political participation, collective action and its permissibility, the question or position towards the Muslim Brotherhood, followed by practical questions of how Islamists attempted to deal with the challenges and opportunities presented by the Egyptian revolution and by developments since, whether it is the March 2011 referendum, forming political parties, the position towards the military during the transitional period, or the presidential elections, the 2012 constitution, and the various questions raised during President Morsi's rule. Throughout these chapters, I highlight the major and minor differences, disagreements among these diverse groups and how they answer each other and the debate taking place between them. Finally, in the conclusion, I look at the question of developments after the military coup in Egypt as how Islamists attempted to deal with the enormous challenges they face and attempt to look at or take a peek at the future of Islamism thinking about what their direction shall be. To discuss these monographs and the broader question of the state and the future of Egyptian Islamism, I'm fortunate to have with us today three distinguished scholars of Egypt and Islamism in general. I will begin with the order in which they will be speaking. Eric Traeger is the Esther Wagner Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Dr. Traeger has served as an adjunct professor in the University of Pennsylvania 
and has been a Fulbright Fellow in Egypt in 2006-2007. His writings have been magazine writings, newspaper writings have appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, and The New Republic. Eric is also finishing a book about the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood that promises to be an important addition and to fill a necessary or existing gap that we have in our scholarship on the Brotherhood since the landmark work in the 1960s of Mitchell with his The Society of the Muslim Brotherhood. Next, we'll be speaking Will McCanns. Will is a fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy and director of its project on U.S. relations with the Islamic world at the Brookings Institution. He's also an adjunct faculty at Johns Hopkins University and has held various government and think tank positions related to Islam, the Middle East, and terrorism. Will is also one who has written about these differences and disagreements between Islamists long before that topic had been um, at anyone's attention. It was very interesting for me to encounter a 2006 paper that Will had written about Madkhale Salafi sheikhs and how we can use their arguments against other Salafis in the ongoing U.S. battle against extremists and jihadis. Lastly, we'll be speaking Mukhtar Awad, who's a research associate with the National Security and International Policy Team at the Center for American Progress. Mukhtar's work focuses on Islamist groups, Middle Eastern politics, and U.S. foreign policy towards the region. Prior to joining the, American, the Center for American Progress, he was a Carnegie Junior Fellow working in the Middle East program and worked as well as an intern in the office of Egypt and the Levant in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs in the U.S. Department of State. Mukhtar is perhaps one of the best experts on Egyptian Salafism, and his work continues to guide many of us in covering the details of that uh, complex group of individuals and, and thoughts. So, uh, Eric, you want to start? So I just want to uh, start by thanking Sam for, uh, for inviting me to speak today. Um, few people have had as big an influence on my understanding of Egypt and Islamism as Sam has, so uh, blame him. Uh, anyway, in his, uh, you know, in his monograph that we're, that we're releasing today, um, Sam, uh, Sam writes, quote, the Brotherhood as an idea is not a point on the Islamist spectrum, but rather a reflection of it. The Brotherhood, as Sam rightly notes, has a, quote, weak theological basis, and Sam argues that the Brotherhood's vagueness on core doctrinal questions enabled the organization to broaden itself and to include, ultimately, many types of people with many types of ideas. I take a, a slightly different view, however, in terms of how I categorize um, the organization, precisely because the Muslim Brotherhood is, as Sam writes, quote, a strong organization with a weak theological basis. I would categorize the Brotherhood as an Islamist movement secondarily uh, and as a political resistance vanguard first and foremost. To put it another way, the Brotherhood's approach to the Sharia, its policy program, and its actual political vision is and always has been remarkably vague. By contrast, the Brotherhood's desire to resist Western influence and control Islamic societies has always been very clear and was especially clear following Egypt's 2011 uprising. 
passing. As Sam notes, the Brotherhood was one of many groups and ideologies that emerged from the, quote, crisis of modernity, uh, which really emerged after Napoleon's conquest of Egypt in, in 1798, in which thinkers from across the Islamic world effectively asked the following question. Why has Islam fallen behind the West? Why is it that Islam, which during the early centuries of its founding, uh, not only, uh, you know, not only uh, controlled you know, expanses from as far west as Spain to as far east as the Indian subcontinent, but was also on the cutting edge of science and, te- uh, and technology. Why is it that Islam has fallen behind the West? And the modernists, thinkers such as al-Afghani, Abdu, and Ritta in particular, argued for reviving Islam through modernizing Islamic curricula and reforming Islamic scholars known as ulema. Essentially, the modernists were saying that um, there's nothing wrong with the Islamic world that can't be cured with what's right with Islam. And what we need to do is revive Islam starting from the top down, starting from the, from the uh, institutions. But Albana saw the, the problem of Western domination not as only a political one, but as a societal one. Uh, manifested in the proliferation of alcohol, skimpy dresses, and loose sexual mores. And his solution for resisting this domination wasn't theological, at least not in any specific sense. Albana, after all, wasn't a thick jurist, he wasn't a Quranic exegete, and he wasn't a theologian. Rather, he was a political theorist and a political leader who thus designed an organizational solution uh, for Western domination, namely the construction of a tightly structured vanguard for cleansing Islamic societies of Western ideas and influences from the grassroots up. Of course, there's an unambiguous ideological element here because in place of Western influence, Albana sought to implement Islam as, quote, an all-encompassing concept, uh, which is known as shumuliyat al-Islam, and essentially assumes that all the solutions to practical policy and legal questions exist within Islamic texts if they're only read properly. And this is why I would argue the Brotherhood's Islamism is secondary to its organization. The Brotherhood was vague in how it interpreted Islam. What did shum- uh, Shumuliyat al-Islam mean? It was not, however, vague on how it would take over the society, then the state, and finally the region to implement this, again, very vague vision. Albana lays out his and the Brotherhood's approach to this bottom-up process of resisting Western influences in his message on teaching, which is a standard component of the Brotherhood's curriculum. This process, Albana wrote, starts with the, quote, reform of the individual to ensure that he is physically fit, educated, organized, useful to others, correct in his beliefs, that he prays properly. Today, this is known as the Brotherhood's tarbiyah, a five- to eight-year process of indoctrination through which every Muslim brother must pass in order to become a full-fledged member. During the course of this tarbiyah indoctrination process, every Muslim brother is tested as he ascends through five different tiers of membership and then takes a bayah, an oath, to listen and obey orders from brotherhood leaders. In other words, a, quote, reformed individual in the brotherhood is one who has been fully integrated into the organization and follows orders from a central leadership wherever he happens to live. That individual then, in Albana's writings, should build a, quote, Muslim home in which he, quote, maintains the ethics of Islam in manifestations of house life, including, quote, the proper education of children who should be raised according to the principles of Islam. Next, the reformed Muslim, again, we mean here a Muslim brother, should, 
should guide the community through preaching, encouraging virtues, and the initiative to do good with the ultimate goal of, quote, winning public opinion to the side of the Islamic idea. This is known within the Brotherhood as Islamizing the society. Thereafter, the Islamized society should continue pushing to liberate the nation, this is a quote, to liberate the nation, to rid it from all foreign, non-Islamic domination, political, economic, and spiritual. The Brotherhood does this through its outreach work winning adherence through preaching, social services, and education. Once the society, and I mean here the general society, has been Islamized, in other words, accepts the brotherhood, it should then, quote, reform the government until it's truly Islamic, meaning that its members are Muslims who perform the obligations of Islam, that the government, quote, executes the rulings of Islam and its teachings. Abana clarified that non-Muslims would be permitted to serve in government, but only so long as they, quote, agree with the general rules of an Islamic regime. Finally, the Islamic State should restore, should seek to restore, quote, the international entity for the Islamic nation to liberate their, their countries, end quote, so that the caliphate is reestablished. This, Albana asserted, would lead to, quote, ustaziyat al-alam, which effectively means mastery of the world, as the call to implement, uh, the, uh, as the call to implement Islam would spread even further. What we have here is a plan, a program for political domination, a way of winning power by first winning over individuals, then their families, then the society, then winning state power, and finally using the Brotherhood's empowerment within multiple states, Brotherhood in Egypt and Nata in Tunisia, the Syrian Brotherhood in Syria, Hamas in, uh, in Palestine, um, that, they would, that they would kind of all come together and create the, quote, global Islamic state known as the Neo-Caliphate. This is the idea. Now, I don't want anyone to leave here believing that the Brotherhood will actually control the world. Uh, in fact, they couldn't even control Egypt, which, which just as a side note, would be like a, a hilarious way to say that someone was a total failure, like he couldn't even control Egypt, you know. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, the fact that you know that the Brotherhood's vision can't possibly succeed, the fact that I know that its vision can't possibly succeed, doesn't mean that the Brotherhood knows this. And it's hundreds of thousands of members, all of whom have been fully indoctrinated and all of whom have sworn oaths to the organization, will let's keep fighting for this vision. Failure, in the Brotherhood's view, doesn't disprove this theory. Morsi's ouster in Egypt, in fact, only proves to Muslim brothers that their vision has enemies. Enemies, of course, who they view as foreign-inspired, Western-inspired implants, and the Brotherhood is therefore compelled to continue its struggle. Uh, so where does the Brotherhood go from here? At the moment, the national organization within Egypt is effectively dead. The entire guidance office is either in prison, hiding, or exile, as are many of the second-tier leaders in the governorates. The organization thus no longer works because orders are no longer passing from the leaders to the cadres on the ground with any perceptible fluency. And that will inevitably weaken the bonds between the leaders and the cadres over time, uh, which means that Muslim brothers will struggle to work organizationally, which is the crux of being a Muslim brother, working for the Islamization of the world through a strong organization of committed, I would say indoctrinated, individuals. But precisely because Muslim brothers are, by definition, committed and sworn to this power-seeking cause, and because there are so many of them, it is reasonable to assume that the organization could resurrect itself within Egypt at some point in the future, especially if the current repression lets up. Moreover, uh, during the repression, Muslim brothers are recruiting in prison. On my last trip to Egypt in October, I met a young Muslim brother who had spent six months in prison and detailed the Brotherhood's recruitment approach. The Brotherhood gives every new prisoner a clean set of white prison suits. 
The Brotherhood's doctors provide health care to inmates, including vaccinations for new arrivals. Uh, and the Brotherhood organizes Islamic lectures for all prisoners following Zohar prayers. Within the prisons, the Brotherhood is offering its more sympathetic face, the same generosity that led so many Western scholars to wrongly believe that the organization had moderated and would govern inclusively in power. But of course, that's mutually exclusive with what the Brotherhood is. Its goal is to resist Western domination by gaining power from the grassroots up, Islamizing the individual, the families, the society, the state, finally the region. What exactly does Islamizing mean? The Brotherhood doesn't know and never really says. It pursues power first and proposes to explain its Islamist ideology later. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Sam, and thank you, Hudson, for having me, and it's a pleasure to be on panel with Eric and Mukhtar. Um, I've benefited a lot from their work. Uh, uh, as I was reading Sam's report, um, I was really struck, um, one, by its depth, and two, by its breadth. I mean, it's a, it's a real achievement. Egyptian Salafism uh, and Islamism generally is not an easy thing to map. Um, and, and while I sometimes got lost in the map, uh, uh, I found it very useful, just as somebody who has tried to track down primary source documents to get a feel for the various disagreements over particular issues. It's, it's quite an achievement. I want to begin by congratulating Sam on, on publishing it. Um, it's not an easy thing to do at all, and I, and I really commend uh, him for both documents. They're going to be very useful for a lot of scholars and for the general public going for the, further uh, into the future. Um, it's interesting to me if you go back to one of the main slogans that the Islamists have put around for the past few decades that Islam is the solution um, and you read this document through the lens of that slogan, um, it, it, it quickly becomes apparent that um, the solutions that are being offered by Islamists themselves and uh, that purport to be Islam are um, uh, contradictory uh, and at best in tension with one another. There is a wide-ranging disagreement among Islamists about what their project is uh, and how to achieve it. And even as, as Eric uh, was just saying, some of these groups that are understood and professed to be Islamist groups um, themselves often don't have a very clear uh, political program. Um, and I think this, these two documents really bring that to the fore, um, that even though a simple solution is being offered uh, as a slogan to mobilize people, that when you look at the actual solutions being put forward, uh, they greatly differ from one another. And um, it was interesting to me uh, as a... Uh, uh, the choice as an author that Sam made, um, I would guess deliberately to um, stay away from some of the scholarly nomenclature that has been developed uh, for describing uh, various kinds of Islamist activism. If it was in there, I, I, I missed it. Um, and I, I'm guessing it was a deliberate choice because, uh, as you can see from his work, 
Um, a lot of these groups are very difficult to categorize, and the, and the categories that he came to uh, will be more familiar to uh, Arabs who live in Egypt because those are the terms they use to describe the Salafi groups, not these Western categories. Um, doesn't mean the, the Western categories are wrong or the Arab ones are more right. They're both uh, concealing uh, a lot of differences between these groups. Uh, but I thought particularly on the Salafi spectrum, you could see where Sam moved away from the uh, traditional kind of tripartite way of understanding Islamism and Salafi Islamism as you have the quietists, then you have the politicos or political activists, and then you have the jihadis. And <clears throat> uh, in Sam's work, you can see that he's really saying that there's at least four different groups and that three is not quite the way uh, to capture it. And a, not much attention has been devoted to this category of quietist in particular. Um, and that's because it's so complicated, because on, you do have groups within that category of, of quietists, those that don't want to say anything about the state, do anything about the state, um, that are true quietists, the, the group like the Mudkhalis that he talked about. These guys don't want to have anything to do with revolution. They don't want to have anything to do with criticizing any ruler. Um, and they go after everyone who does, <clears throat> which for some of these rulers that are behaving badly is a very nice group to have around. Uh, but then you get to the so-called scholarly Salafis who you know, uh, have a lot in common with the Madhalis. I mean, they're talking about the same texts. They're all part of the same scholarly community. Most of these, almost all of these, are usually characterized as quietists. Um, but many of them make uh, political statements. Um, and I'm thinking like someone uh, like Albani, uh, who comes up a lot in, in Sam's document. You know, he is often held up as the quintessential quietist. Um, but he has a political voice, and he weighs in on controversies of the day. He encouraged uh, folks, I believe, and <clears throat> I've seen one letter of his, pertaining to Algeria, where he uh, sanctioned uh, Muslims voting in those elections. So it's, it's, it's not a quietist like the Madhali. So, you know, you're looking at something like an a Islamist uh, spectrum and even a spectrum within the, within the Salafis. And I, and I think this document really <clears throat> brings that to a fore. It struck me in reading it that all of these controversies uh, were much murkier uh, before uh, the fall of Mubarak and the elections, and that the opportunity for free and fair elections was a clarifying moment uh, for the Islamists, and particularly in the Salafi uh, camp. Uh, because prior to that, a lot of the discussion about whether or not to get involved in politics, sure, it had an ideological dimension, um, most Salafis are very and still very much against politics. But there was also a more pragmatic direction, uh, element to the discussion. <clears throat> How can we get involved in politics and remain pure in the eyes of the people? What are we going to get out of involvement in politics when it's not really uh, free and fair elections that we're involved in? Um, after the fall of Mubarak, <clears throat> I think um, a lot of these issues were clarified. Um, and it became much more about uh, um, uh, first principles uh, than it was about you know, pragmatic uh, positioning in the way that it was uh, before Mubarak. <clears throat> Conversely, 
I think the coup has been uh, confusing uh, for the Islamists uh, because, again, you have a military strongman in place, and we're going back to older discussions about, you know, is it really worth being involved in this kind of system where elections aren't going to be free and fair, um, uh, and, you know, we risk uh, not just our own political fate, but the fate of the entire Islamist project, and aren't we better off being on the outside rather than than in and it's and it's a confusing moment again uh, because of the lack of transparency uh, in the political process. I also couldn't help but feeling reading through that um, for a lot of these debates, uh, I imagine you know Sam is wrapping up his work and he's been chewing on this thing for two years and and. And ISIS happens when he's finishing, and, and it's kind of in the background. And it's in the background for me when I'm reading the document because you see all of these debates about how do we have a, an Islamic state in the modern world and what does it mean to be Islamic and modern and how do we do this? And, and ISIS comes and just cuts the Gordian knot and is done with the argument for them and for many jihadists at least. Um, the argument is over. Uh, the caliphate has been reestablished. Um, it is pointedly outside of the nation-state system. Um, it rejects the vanguardist uh, political ideology of not just the Brotherhood, but also al-Qaeda, which saw itself as fighting in a vanguard to establish an Islamic state far down the road. It's broken with all of these groups and says caliphate now. And so <clears throat> reading through all of these debates, you, you wonder <clears throat> how they are going to be had now that you have a group that has declared a caliphate and can back it up. I mean, groups have declared these kind of things in the past, but they haven't controlled a territory you know, the, the, the size of Jordan, let's say. Um, and they're not making it $2 billion, $3 billion a year and grabbing international headlines. Um, I think that the tenor of the conversation changes, and I think you can already see that it's changing uh, with inside, inside Egypt. Uh, if you look at um, uh, the Facebook pages of the younger members of the Brotherhood, uh, you can see them circulating uh, statements from ISIS. Uh, even Adnani, the spokesman for the Islamic State, one of his statements critical of the Ikhwan's approach uh, to uh, democracy um, uh, a lot of them were circulating it favorably. And it comes, of course, in a political context where they feel like they tried to abide by the rules of the game as they understood them, um, and they got burned. And it is, um, it's sort of a sad uh, coda or epilogue on, on the trajectory of Islamism within Egypt that you know, previously the slogan of Islam is the solution was bandied about, and now a hashtag saying that ISIS is the solution uh, is being bandied about by younger members of the Brotherhood. And I think um, the fact that ISIS has expanded to Egypt itself and that it has established a state um, changes the tenor of the conversation inside Egypt and the future of the Islamic movement there. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Thank you, 
Thank you, Sam, for inviting me and uh, being able to come back here uh, again at Hudson. It's really a pleasure. I've also had the pleasure of being able to be read in on this um, for, for quite some time um, and uh, having many conversations with Sam about what these issues that he's discussing um, mean. And I want to echo um, right off the bat what Will was discussing. I can't stress enough, really, the value of these two reports. Um, this is a resource. Uh, this is, I venture to say, an original uh, resource, uh, especially in the English language. What we have is not just simply a mapping, but it's a lens that we can use to look into a very complicated uh, world of Egyptian Salafism, uh, specifically. And I say this as someone who was beginning to get interested in Salafis because of the political part of the discussions that they had. I used to actually actively ignore the theological debates that Sam discusses in detail. Um, and, and I say this, if you ever have to live through the displeasure of listening to many of these sermons, I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of hours, you can, you can really um, not understand what they are saying. So. In, inside Egypt itself, inside Egypt itself, most people don't actually, uh, are not actually read in to, to what Sam describes in, in, in excruciating detail. Um, so th this, this, is, this is one of my first points about really how this is a closed circle to an extent. It, it's a closed conversation. However, at the same time, it is open for almost anyone that wants to join. Um, what you need is, of course, to understand the vocabulary, to have the educational training, but it's so easy for someone to assert themselves as an authority um, in these issues so long as they really have the vocabulary that. We'll come back to the point about how this is, the, this fluidity is really a problematic thing that we really suffer from, especially in Egypt. When we come and speak about the mapping, the first report Sam has, it is really important to reflect when we hear things to this day, people discussing what is the impact of X on the Islamists? What is the impact on the Salafists? And then you read this and you say, which Islamists and which Salafis exactly are you talking about? So how useful it is, is it for us to continue to have our discussions, especially even in analytical circles, if you will, in D.C., and continue to hear things like the Salafis? It doesn't mean anything. Um, and, and, and this is important because today what we've seen is a very important distinction that is having political repercussions in Egypt today, especially after the coup. Different groups of Salafis have reacted to the coup differently, and that has had actual repercussions on the ground. And so it's important for us to, to really be interested in understanding what are these distinctions and what they mean? Because these are different groups that should be engaged differently and should be understood also differently. The last point of reflection I'll have on this point, what does it mean, as, as Will said, you know, when we hear simplistic slogans like Islam is the solution, and then you listen to five different Salafi sheikhs and you have five completely different answers and maybe a sixth would, would, would arise, it's really something that should make us think about how is it that this ideology, if you will, is something that we've been led to believe at some point, people confusing organizational strength or other uh, qualities for the understanding that this is somehow an ideology 
or a way of doing things that has staying power in the Middle East. These people are Muslims, and these people are speaking Islam. Therefore, these people are the future, or these people um, is the direction things are heading in. The reality on the ground couldn't be further from this, because these people, these Islamists, don't actually know what is it that they're fighting for. It's very vague, and it's very simplistic, and that is a problem that we're still suffering from today. Because when we discuss issues like the future of Islamism in Egypt, then you have, back to my earlier point about how anyone can assert themselves in this landscape, then you have new people, younger people, especially in the case of Egypt, who are now asserting themselves and putting themselves in the middle of this debate and trying to have new answers that are unfortunately not just something that is as violent as ISIS, but is inherently uh, more rebellious and more violent. Doesn't have to be like ISIS, but it's definitely something that does not buy into the modern understanding of the nation state. I will have, before I discuss a little bit more about really what I think is the most important issue we're discussing today, and that is thoughts about the future of Islamists, uh, a point of reflection about how some of what Sam has has played out. And really when you read the second uh, report, it's setting you up, I think, for the last section, understanding how things actually go down once these people have to confront uh, reality on the ground. And I take the case of the Salafi Dawah, the group, or the Salafist call, as it's called in the report, as the group that I've studied the most. For years, they have had these debates that, you've read, that you're reading, and the speed um, in which they absolutely either set aside or abandon flat out um, some of these um, you know, beliefs about political participation or try to, to, to backtrack or change is really quite surprising. And it's not necessarily that they're going through a process of moderating um, or, or, or just uh, they're, evol they're, they're evolving, but it really speaks volumes about the cynical attitude that most of these Salafis have, even the so-called politicos, towards modern politics writ large. They don't see this as a system that they can ever truly participate in. And if they do, it is really a tool. It's not passing judgment, but it is, in fact, what they, what they say. They don't ever buy into the political system. And so for the Salafi Dawah, from the get-go, it is a continuous exercise to try and see where they can fit into this paradigm. So the understanding that we have today is, of course, they're on the opposite end of the Muslim Brotherhood because they have these um, you know, year, uh, decades long uh, issues with the Brotherhood and all of these uh, problems. But actually, you know, if one looks specifically at the history in the last three years, the Salafi Dawah was actually one of the first people to encourage the Muslim Brotherhood to field a candidate for president. They went and asked uh, for Khairat al-Shadr to run because they were afraid Hazm Salah Abu Ismail would be the, um, the, the, the Salafi candidate in the presidency. When Khairat al-Shadr is then disqualified, they then have a conversation about, well, how do we reorient our position? All of a sudden, actually, you know what? The Muslim Brotherhood shouldn't be in the position of leading this country, and then we will go and support uh, Abdul Manam Abu al-Futuh. And then, of course, they have another moment and another moment of changing their positions on different things. Islamists see this as contradictions and things like that, but I see this as really a reflection um, of what it means when you have these Salafist political actors who, are cynic, who, who view this uh, in, in a purely cynical way, 
actually start to practice politics. It, it seems like it's a pragmatic game. It is in practice, but it really is because they don't actually fully buy into the system. And so you have these um, results in the case of Egypt where the Salafi da'wah is adamant that it is right when it's with its political decisions. And a growing number of Egyptian Islamists are saying um, that it's not only wrong, but it has gone astray. But yet they're still uh, pushing through because they're harking back on their own now theological um, you know, understanding of what it means for the Salafi da'wah to be the supreme Salafi strand in, in Egypt. And so this allows them to continue to believe in their exceptionalism. This allows them to continue to have unpopular political positions because at the end of the day, they do view themselves as the only viable path forward. So in short, it gets messy when these people try to play in politics. The last point I'll have on, on the future of, of Egyptian Islamism, I think one of the most important, not to be cliche, but uh, sentences that Sam has in his report is, is really the last one. When we're talking about this new generation of, of Islamists, he says, the same question that faced their fathers and grandfathers, the crisis of modernity, remains an open question. That is precisely what we are seeing today, especially in the case of Egypt. The coup is not the, um, the event that basically sets everything in motion, but it's really a catalyst, um, if you will, that allows these new Islamists to look at not only the history of the last three years, but the history of the last century, and see time and time again, all of these different groups, all of these different methodologies have proven themselves to have failed. The coup is only the last um, but most clear moment for them of how this failure manifests itself on the ground. But when they are faced with an existential moment, um, because they are literally having to fend for their lives, at least the Islamists that are against the government, in the case of Rabah, we see that some of these debates, divisions, are set aside to an extent. Um, Sam calls it a melting pot. And that is the moment that we are living today when we think about the anti-government Islamists, if to use a, an, another uh, category that, that is probably meaningless if we try to dissect it even further. But in that general sphere of people who are against the government, they are setting aside some of their differences. And what they are trying to think about is how to come up with a new method, come up with a new understanding of how to, for them in the immediate, break the coup, but of course ultimately establish some form of an Islamic state in Egypt. But with the new generation specifically, they're very, I argue, unique. And perhaps it's a bias of we're living um, you know, with them in, in their age as they're having these questions, uh, as, as they're, sorry, asking these questions, because they're not just versed in the Islamic texts. The tragic irony is that many of these people, um, ha I can't say well-educated, but they are educated, um, and they're definitely educated about Western, um, you know, they've read, many of them read really what amounts to the Western canon. They, um, look at the modern Western debates about the states uh, and, and so on, and then they don't learn from this how to, to make their country better or how to, to learn how this example worked for the Europeans, but then say, <laughs> look, this is the debates that the Europeans are having or the Westerners are having. They would focus, for instance, on the Frankfurt School. One of the, the most um, lasting experiences I've had was uh, talking with a former student of Yasser Burhami, 
and uh, most of the time he's talking about the Frankfurt School. I was you know, a bit surprised, um, but they're looking at these critiques in the Western world, and they're trying to learn from them and confirm that their own understanding of the failure of the Western model um, is, is in fact true. And so they're still in this process of denial. That it's not just uh, a crisis of modernity for them, even when they learn about the specifics of, of what exactly it took for the Western world to, to advance, what is Western political thought, what is Western political culture, they, they, the, they come and use this to reconfirm the rejection of this. And so we, th- we see things that are injected in their perception of the world um, that is not completely different, but is, is new from, from their predecessors. Many of them are conspiracy-minded. Um, they look at things um, uh, through almost um, socialist lens, if you will. They're against the globalization of the world. They're against the uh, economic hegemony of the United States. And they try to then infuse these, these radical left thoughts, if you will, and, I- and ideas with a modern uh, understanding of Islamic methodology, and then you end up with things like the Ahrar movement in, in Egypt, uh, one of the new Islamist groups uh, that are trying to infuse these very confused um, ideas about uh, you know, how the world should be. And what you're left with is really a, a dangerous hot mess. Um, and, and, and they think it's, it's genius, you know, because they, they, they look at these Western critiques of globalization, of capitalism, and only see that it really confirms their worldview. One of these people, for instance, you know, his name is, is Anas Hassan, and he's very popular on Facebook. And he, he really manifests many of these ideas. I would, I would venture to say he's really someone you can point to and see where that direction is going. Many people, when they first encounter this, probably will scoff and say this can't possibly be you know, what is accepted or what is taken seriously as a thinker. But unfortunately, in the world that we live in, especially in the case of Egypt, that is the case. Um, and, and so you know, someone like him, I, I, I talked to him, and you know, I said, you know, what is it that, that, that you actually want uh, to see? He explained many of the things that we discussed about this Islamic state. But in the immediate it's about how is it that we can break the coup, how is it that we can have revolution. He wasn't sure on the specifics, but he, what he was sure about is that it will definitely have to be violent. And that the use of violence is not something that should be really an obstacle because it will bring you results. When I propositioned that this is, is something that will cause the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, he said, well, it's fine. In the grand scheme of things, that is fine. And the, 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 the last note I'll, I'll have on that is that, you know, when we talk about this first point about these, the different divisions in, in the Islamists, how anyone can assert themselves, you have more people like Hassan asserting themselves um, in, in, the, in the middle of that debate. But the unfortunate thing is that it is such a divided landscape. There is really no position of authority. There is really and, – and, and, and that allows them – Everyone from Ahrar, which is as a nothing compared to ISIS, to ISIS itself, can easily dismiss any counter view. And so when we talk about using al-Azhar, when we talk about using you know, uh, uh, criticisms of, of them, it doesn't really have an impact because they've convinced themselves that they are, that they are right. And, and, and that's the unfortunate thing, really, when I think about the future of, of, Egypt, of Egyptian Islamism, and especially this young strand of Islamists, is that really no one is in a position to, to tell them otherwise or show them to, 
the right path, if you will, whatever that would mean. Um, they are continuing to, to, to see the world not just through this Islamist lens, but a conspiratorial lens. Um, and in, in a very interesting way, almost copying everything that they would find useful from the different groups. And so they may not be buying into how ISIS went on to establish the caliphate now, but when it comes to ISIS' use of violence, why not? We can, we can use that. When it comes to, uh, again, leftist critiques of uh, globalization, yeah, that, that fits well with you know, what we believe about the U.S. Uh, hegemony in the region and how it's a war against our identity. It's also an economic war against our identity, and therefore it confirms our belief of why the United States is an enemy after all, even though we haven't you know, went to that conclusion through whether this is the far enemy or the near enemy. No, 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 it's, it's globalization. Globalization is an attack against our Islamic identity, and so therefore we're going to attack the United States somewhere uh, in, in, in the future. Um, and, and that is, again, the, the state that we are living in. And absent some other radical uh, transformations or other turning points, um, that is really the trajectory that you're on in the case of Egypt. Um, It is something that I hope um, can be studied more and eventually reversed in some way. Thank you. Thank you, Mustafa. Well, uh, thank you all for your... um, important comments, and um, let me start the conversation by uh, throwing in uh, or asking some questions. Let me first pick up on the, on the last comment that you made, Mukhtar, or the last point about this mixture between Marxism and Islamism. Uh, we've had similar attempts in the past. We've had a Shiite variant in the form of Ali Shariati, and his attempt, Khomeini didn't buy into that all along, although the, the Islamic Republic in Iran still maintains this line of fighting for the, um, the poor of the world or the, the struggling people of the whole world. In the Sunni realm of the world, this has had very limited um, effect. I can think of uh, Sayyid Qutb's work on social justice in Islam, I cannot think of any other work that has attempted to make that bridge. Is it possible in the Sunni world? Isn't it, in a sense, the the very nature of Sunni Islam has been a rejection of that rebellious nature as an answer to continuous Shiite rebellions throughout the centuries? And my question is, of course, not to Mukhtar only, but to everyone on the panel. You know... I, I, I can't really speak, you know, if, if, it's, if it's possible or not. Definitely in, in, in the views of some of these people that, that we've discussed and even are, uh, somebody like Ennis and, and others are, are, are in this mapping. Um, what, what we've seen is that an attempt to uh, revisit and, 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 and apply the views of some of the recent scholars, some recent Egyptian scholars, one of them you know, Abdul Wahab al-Misiri, um, is someone, for instance, that's celebrated by, by this class, if you will, as, as someone that is successful in, in what, you're, what you're saying, that um, even though he was uh, definitely someone who's, who's a leftist, they view him as someone who um, has, has seen the errors of, of, of his way and, and slowly became an Islamist. Not surprisingly, of course, he is, is the author of many things that relate to Zionism, and, 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 and that definitely fits in well into, into their worldview as someone who's been able to kind of balance um, some of his 
um, you know, leftist uh, uh, ideas, uh, revolutionary and rebellious ideas, if you will, um, and almost having uh, a poetic end-of-life uh, kind of moment where he became uh, more Islamist and tried to intermarry some of these, some of these principles. Um, so that's, that's what I'll say on that, that, that you know, th that is, I think, how they're trying to establish it. They're, they're actively looking for, for figures whom they are then trying to frame their own uh, arguments and ideas to fit, to fit this paradigm. Now, why I think this is, this is important is because for, for, for this new generation, um, they, they've had actually an education, a, a somewhat well-rounded education. They've been exposed to the world. And I think for them, that only aggravated this question of crisis of modernity even more. How is it you know, that we learn about these ideas, and deep down we know that it makes some sense, but we can't actually get ourselves to say, you know what, that works. I can't say that. I can't say that you know, uh, capitalism works. I can't say that liberalism works. Uh, or for them, they're, they're more interested in, 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 in Marxism and, 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 and socialism. And so what they do is try to find a way to Islamize it and make it fit their Islamist worldview. And we, f we see this very much on display, the level of shared understanding. This is perhaps a bit of a uh, uh, very kind of nerdy point, if you will, because much of this, by the way, is in the virtual space, uh, if not most of it right now, uh, literally on Facebook and Twitter, but really just Facebook. Um, and, and, and you, you know, you actually physically have people who are, um, you know, leftists, but with, you know, radical uh, views towards how to change the current government in Egypt, very active and good relationships and friendships with Islamists like, like, like Hassan and others. And somehow their, their worldviews are, are converging. So. I don't know if... Uh... Sure. I mean, just... Uh... Just briefly on this question, and I think your uh, your monograph really really makes this point well. When it comes to the Brotherhood, again, this is an organization that is um, ideologically vacuous in a in a certain sense. Doesn't really have an actual program. Isn't actually that motivated by um, ideas. It's motivated by a certain theory for resisting the West and gaining power in the West place, which it. Um, equates with Islamizing the uh, society, state, and then the region. But of course, you did see um, during the uh, the kind of post uprising period uh, an attempt to put out some ideas in the uh, the uh, the Renaissance program, the NAFTA program, which was you know the Brotherhood said a political platform that it spent. It said uh, two decades trying to write. If I spent two decades on something, I hope it would be a bit sharper. Um, and, uh, and just kind of jumping off of Mokhtar's point, it did try to mesh a lot of different ideas, but did it in an incredibly sloppy way. So it was going to simultaneously grow the economy by cutting red tape and provide a bigger social safety net for the poor. Oh, and ban rubber over time. And uh, and implement the uh, the uh, Sharia. So uh, so you know, it, and and it it never had to reconcile those uh, contradictions because ultimately the Brotherhood's time and power was was very very short. But I think the core point that that Mokhtar just made about the fact that these groups ultimately are wrestling with a lot of contradictions in at least in my study of the Brotherhood are primarily concerned with power and then ideology um, ultimately fail when they come to power because they really have no uh, clear governance.
questioning philosophy. And that's why, frankly, I just think it was so laughable um, that the Brotherhood was taken seriously as a political movement that could govern effectively, govern inclusively, and even most laughably um, be a partner of the United States because the whole basis of its agenda is, of course, resisting um, Western Western political domination. Um, so uh, so I think that, that focusing in on the fact that these ideologies are not clear and that what these groups are ultimately doing is pursuing power, whether now through violence, whether through elections, and obviously, you know, we should have a, a preference between those two. Um, they're ultimately pursuing power. They're not really pursuing a very clear uh, ideological agenda. And if I could say something, <clears throat> just to take it back to the 1950s, it's, it's striking that you had a figure like Mustafa Sabahi, who was the head of the Brotherhood, uh, in Syria, write a book called Islamic Socialism uh, that was well thought of. Uh, two, day, two decades later, in the 1970s, it had disappeared um, for two reasons. One, because uh, socialism had become so ascendant and brutal by that period. Uh, you had the Assad regime in, in place. Um, uh, but also that the tenor of the political discussion had changed, that, that Islamism had then become ascendant, so it wasn't as pressing as it had been before to try and reconcile it with uh, the more dominant uh, intellectual uh, trend uh, in the 1950s and 40s in the region, which would have been socialism. And, and going to Eric's point and, and Mukhtar's point, um, that perhaps that's why you see a little bit more of a lazy engagement uh, today uh, with Western thought, particularly uh, leftist thought, uh, because the feeling is that you know, we're ascendant now, even if politically we're on the back foot that ideologically uh, we have won the argument, even if they haven't won the argument at all. If the brotherhoodism is a theological vacuum, that naturally welcomes infiltration, both from um, ideas emerging within its own ranks, I refer to something like Sayyid Qutb's experience, for example, or infiltration by ideas from without, um, whether it's Salafization. We've had works by uh, the late Qusam um, Tamem about the Salafization of the Muslim Brotherhood, or by something like ISIS today. Um, is that the trend? If the Brotherhood is, is under pressure as an organization in Egypt, is the natural outcome that we have today that 400,000, 500,000, whatever the exact figure of Muslim Brotherhood members are going to go in those various ideas or be impacted by those various ideas uh, within the other Islamist groups and currents? Um, it's, it's, it's actually perhaps one of the, if not the most important uh, question um, even though the Muslim Brotherhood, when, when, we, when we talk, so a uh, point of distinction, of course, when we talk about you know, these theological debates, they, they really are not the, 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 the central focal point. The, and, and, and when it comes to numbers, also, um, they're not uh, the, the majority. Um, however, because definitely of their organization, they are the most likely to try and affect some form of change in society. So now, I, yes, I, I think definitely there is a vacuum. The, the Brotherhood is, is so... Um, the Arabic word is hesh, you know, if you, uh, weak. weak, you know, there, there, there's, there's this rigidity in structure, but not necessarily in thought. It's quite fluid uh, for, for, for some of them. Uh, and I'll take as a launching point 
um, from from my answer, I I, I talked with with some of their some of their leaders who surprisingly you know continues to make the rounds in in America and, and Europe uh, without issues. I asked them, you know, do you fear that some of your your members will become jihadis? He said, well, you know, we can't really control that. Um, and I said, well, don't you have a, a, a ideological kind of uh, 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 curriculum that g guards against this? He said, yeah, you know, but people believe what they want to believe. So they, they, they seem to, you know, unfortunately have this very cynical um, kind of position of like, well, whomever wants to adopt a certain kind of view can adopt it. So when it comes to becoming um, more radical, that is fine for them, so long as that is not tied to an ideological, uh, ideological uh, structure or program that goes contrary to the Brotherhood, meaning the Brotherhood today, for instance, I believe tolerates a lot of low-level violence by really non-ideological youth who are, who are doing things for revenge. But the real threat for them, uh, other than just a threat for society in general, is that many of these people, so some of them are revolutionary Salafis who are trying to influence from the outside, but many of them are actually former Brotherhood members, like young people who were in the Brotherhood, some of those who have left you know, after the revolution for many different reasons, who are now trying to reassert a position inside uh, the organization on the ground. Obviously, they can't you know, rejoin the, the, the actual organizational structure, but because of how fluid things are in Egypt, they can definitely start to dictate facts on the ground. And so some of these people are armed with the full understanding of what the Brotherhood is and what it's all about, recognize that there is this ideological vacuum, and are trying to actually seize the opportunity to fill that vacuum, not just with radical ideas, but ideas that go contrary to the Brotherhood structure itself. They do not value the, the rigidity of the hierarchy. They do not value the hierarchy itself. And they actively believe that the leadership, writ large, is to blame uh, for, for all the ills that have um, you know, befallen, befallen them. So I think the Brotherhood is really under attack, if you will, by, by some of these people. Uh, and it's a, a secret shadow war, if you will, uh, of trying to, for them, turn the Brotherhood down many notches uh, because of, again, the, 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 the great crisis it, it has helped create uh, and try to, in one, in, one, in one sense, restructure the Brotherhood but also have different competing groups um, that will try to affect change in their, in their own way. So, so, you know, just on this point, um, I think it's always important to remember that the, the ideological debates that you address so well, Sam, in your, in your monograph are very present within the Brotherhood, but at the same time, um, as, as Mukhtar said, are not the defining experience of what it means to be a Muslim brother. Uh, that's to say that the defining experience of being a Muslim brother is about membership in a specific type of organization that involves a specific kind of five to eight year multi-tiered membership process and that does specific activities designed to islamize the individual the family the society the state and finally the region i mean that is for your kind of average typical muslim brother what being a muslim brother is about now the um, now, the, uh, you know, uh, issues that, that Mukhtar was, was discussing in terms of, you know, after the coup, 
um, with with Muslim brothers increasingly being at odds with their leadership in uh, in rebelling in some cases against their leadership. I mean, there are all sorts of reports about calls for Mahmoud Hussein, the Secretary General, to be removed from the Brotherhood. Um, you know, certain certain uh, youth factions breaking off and uh, or not breaking off and doing violent activities, such as through Molotov movement, the Bat movement, things that actually Mukhtar uh, really brought to Washington's attention earlier earlier this year, uh, very very effectively. Um, but you know, I I think back historically, these kinds of factions within the Brotherhood that have dissented with a leadership, um, you know, very publicly, have rarely actually been mainstream within the organization. I mean, for just for example, when you think back to 1995, the breakoff of the Wasat Party, which you address in your monograph, or after the uprising in 2011, when you had a faction of young Muslim brothers who had been very active in the revolution, very active in Tahrir Square, didn't want the Brotherhood to form a political party, and uh, and held a conference, which I actually uh, was at, uh, not as a participant, um, uh, which I was at, where they uh, where they you know sent a message to the to the Supreme Guide saying that they that they rejected the formation of one political party. I mean, all of these instances are examples of prominent, relatively young Muslim brothers rebelling against the organization, ultimately leaving the organization, but with no actual consequence for the organization's um, internal integrity, its cohesiveness. Uh, They've always been called splits, but in fact, they're really chips. And I'm inclined to suspect that that's also the case now, that what we're most able to see, the, the rebels within the organization, um, are not, in fact, the, the median Muslim brothers. I can't prove that, unfortunately, because it's, it's increasingly hard to, to research this. Um, and it's, of course, always hard to kind of uh, get to the ones who are still uh, very much involved in doing typical brotherhood activity, especially now. But just looking historically, those that have tried to go a different way from the Brotherhood leadership, thinking the leadership failed, thinking the leadership missed an opportunity, have never really been representative of the uh, median Muslim brother or the average Muslim brother, I should say, um, for the simple reason that being a Muslim brother is about being a part of this organization, um, following a rigid chain of command, going through its membership practices, and trying to, over time, Islamize the individual, family, society, state, and region. And for those kinds of Muslim brothers, the fact that you had Morsi ousted within a year doesn't in any way disprove that idea. It just tells them what they already knew, which is, hey, this program has enemies, and we need to keep fighting. Yeah, and... and in terms of the ideological influence from the outside, I mean, Sam, your 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 point is well taken, and and I'm sure it'll happen because it's happened in the past. But it just it it occurs to me that we usually think of influence from the outside, particularly as a jihadi Salafi influence. I'm not I'm not turning up. Is that better? Amazing. Um, we usually think of that influence as a jihadi Salafi influence, but. What if it were a different kind of Salafi influence? It would be really hard to document, but what if it's the more quietest strain that begins to have an influence on a lot of the younger Muslim brothers? And these would be guys that just dropped out of the scene um, because, of course, quietism cuts completely against the Brotherhood's program, as, as Eric is outlining. I'm, I'm not saying that kind of movement is big. I'm not even saying it's necessarily happening, but as Eric said, given that we can't report well on this kind of stuff right now. It's kind of the best assertion to make that can't be disproven. Um, but it's but it's but it's it's interesting to me that some of these influences that you describe within the Salafi current, uh, particularly the quietest ones, could become much more appealing in this environment where 
um, uh, Brotherhood members uh, feel that, that uh, fighting against the state becomes utterly futile. Well, thank you, and um, I think we still have a few minutes to open the floor for questions from the audience. Please, uh, mics will be are available, so please, uh, if you'd like to ask a question, identify yourself and ask your question. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mike Kurtzig here, from formerly of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I'm listening to all this ideology and philosophy. Does the Brotherhood offer an economic program? I mean, one of the things that's needed in Egypt is some industries, some manufacturing, some jobs. Is that maybe perhaps why Morsi was overthrown because they didn't offer that? And is it in their, in their charter that they will create jobs for these people, these millions who are unemployed, particularly the young people who are unemployed? Thank you. Thank you. Just, uh, just on that point, you know, it, it is very interesting to me um, that during his year in power, Morsi never actually issued an economic plan. Uh, there had been at one point an economic plan, I believe, on the finance ministry's website that was quickly taken down. And that, that for me, sort of affirms the point that this is not an organization that's really about policy, that's about ideas, it's about power. Um, and so, so it, it really deferred policy. Now, of course, it, 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 you know, in the Renaissance Project, which was Morsi's platform, effectively, um, had a mix of capitalist, socialist, and kind of vague Islamic ideas, but, but it never really had to reconcile those things. And just, just on, you know, your final question about is that why Morsi fell? Look, my view is that, is that Morsi fell um, because he basically lost control. He lost control um, of the society and the state, especially after his November uh, 2012 decision to, uh, you know, the Constitutional Declaration in which he put his own edicts above judicial scrutiny. You had a, a mounting popular rebellion both at that time that really exploded in June of 2013, plus the, uh, the bureaucracy seeing that rebellion uh, increasingly refusing to respond to him. So that by the time, you know, the June 30th, 2013, protests hit, Morsi effectively controlled nothing. You had the police in the streets, you had the military dropping flags on protesters, you had the judiciary walking out, you had the foreign ministry walking out. And, you know, whether we see Morsi's ouster as, you know, the great takedown of an Islamist would-be dictator or a horrible affront to democracy, the fact that he lost control says to me that, um, that he could have never continued being president anyway, because when a president loses control, he's just, he's just not, you know, really a president. Um, Hillel in the back. Hi, uh, Abe Shulsky from uh, Hudson. Um, with the uh, civil war in Syria sort of exacerbating the whole Sunni-Shia issue within uh, the region and Islam generally, I was just wondering what, what are the attitudes of these various uh, currents within Egypt towards uh, the Shia? I mean, do they have the same sort of animosities that you find in other parts, or has it been a, uh, a, a less of a question? Thank you. If we can take a couple of questions and then answer them. Hillel, you. Uh, Hillel Fratkin of the Hudson Institute. Well, first, I'd, I'd just like to thank uh, Sam for his monograph and all of you for the discussion, which has really been a very, very serious and important discussion. My, my, my question really arises from something that Will McCann said uh, 
about how they, specifically about the Salafi reaction to all that's going on. And I'm... Uh, and then if you could raise your voice a bit. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the the <laughs> it starts from what the Salafi reaction to, let's say, the last three years. Prior to that, one might, might have said that the Salafis were the repository of a very old view pre that, that existed prior to the modern crisis that, that Eric referred to. Uh, and that was the view that uh, arising from the original politics of Islam and the fear of civil war that deference was to be made to the political authorities no matter what. The famous formula is better 100 years of tyranny than, uh, than one day of civil war. And so that they were, in a way, the, the bearers of that traditional view of politics and could be comfortable almost with any politics. And then you get 2011, and you, you have, on the one hand, the opening of politics to participation, and on the other, you have the closing of politics or participatory politics by the Islamic State. So neither of these things really fit the old Salafi view or the the traditional view, uh, they both invite, both of them invite and repel political participation. And I wonder if one sees a kind of discussion of these kind of ev facts as events that require a whole new way of thinking about Muslim politics. Thank you. There was a ha another hand, yes, here in the middle. Thank you, Mahmoud Al Hamalawi with uh, Al Jazeera Arabic. Thank you so much for hosting this, and good to see you again, uh, Eric. I wanted to get a sense in general of what the panel views as the future of political Salafism or political Islam in 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 Egypt. The climate there right now is very polarized. You have a large portion of people who believe in the current government, believe in its current mission, and believe that the other side, the ultra conservative side hey, you got your shot, and we saw what, what happened. And they, in turn, will say, well, we never really had a shot. They're out to get us anyway. But politically, moving forward, especially ahead of upcoming parliamentary elections, what sort of role might they play? Or might this be an opportunity for the current government to reach out to them or allow some members to run as independents like during the days of Mubarak? Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, here. And Thank you, Manar Ghunayn, Middle East News Agency, Egypt. Uh, my question is regarding the Salafists and uh, what will be their political future within the coming uh, elections, parliamentary elections. And do you think that the Egyptians still see that Islam plays a great role in the political sphere and in their everyday life so far? Thank you. Thank you. Um, Will you want to start and we move forward? Sure. So if I could, if I could combine a, a, a few of these um, regarding the uh, the position of the Shia and the disc Islamist discourse around the Shia uh, in Egypt, I can say on the part of the Salafis uh, that it is very overwrought, particularly since there's not many Shia in the country. But a lot of this has to do with fears of Iran and the rising influence of Iran, uh, Iran's attempt to acquire a nuclear weapon. Uh, so the Salafi uh, discussions surrounding the Shia are very overheated, sometimes leading uh, to violence. 
um, Hillel's point vis-a-vis the, the medieval Sunni stance uh, towards uh, tyrannical rulers is, is well taken. Um, I'm really interested to see what happens in the upcoming elections. My understanding is that Noor is still going to be allowed uh, to run candidates. Um, everyone I talked to when I was back there, mind you, this was May or June, um, uh, felt that the that the uh, the Noor party was going to do very badly in the upcoming elections. Even Noor members believe that they're going mm-hmm. to do very badly in the upcoming elections. Um, if you talk to their party leaders, however, uh, they have made the calculation that staying inside the political tent is better than being on the outside because they believe that they are playing the long game and they are looking to displace the Brotherhood as the main Islamist uh, party uh, uh, in the country. Um, if you talk to the Salafi groups in opposition, uh, they will tell you the opposite, uh, that it is they who are playing the long game and that Noor party is being unnecessarily or stupidly short-sighted and they are going to ruin themselves, the, the elections will tell. Okay. Eric? Yeah, so uh, look, just on, on the Shiite question, one thing that I, that I noticed um, a great deal during the, uh, the course of Morsi's presidency and the various trips that I took to Egypt was how Morsi's outreach to Iran, of course he visited Tehran, invited Ahmadinejad to Cairo, um, really created a problem for him with the Shiites. By about February 2013, March 2013, um, the, excuse me, a problem with the Salafists. The, the Salafists that I would speak to, um, especially in the Noor party, said that this was a, a big problem for them. It's one of the reasons that they were starting to move away from Morsi and um, and actually you know the Salafists and I'm speaking now of the Noor party uh, at one point tried to build a national structure that was almost as rigid as that of the Brotherhood with a central chain of command and then subsidiary levels of leadership um, down to the local level and I remember asking a, uh, a Noor party official in um, in Garbia why you know why are you doing this what's the purpose of this structure and he said well it's it would be really good to have you know a local team in place if there's ever a local threat of Shiites. So Shiites, even though there are very few Shiites in in Egypt, um, became some sort of uh, some sort of key you know uh, key mobilizing point for for the uh, the Noor Party in particular. I think Salaf is more broadly. Well, you could speak to that um, against uh, against Morsi. I, I I don't know how the Noor Party will do in the in the next elections. You again might be able to speak to that. Um, Better. What I expect from the parliamentary elections is that you're basically going to have a resurrection of what I would call the Mubarakist order, by which I mean that the districts will be drawn, uh, particularly in the countryside, in the in the delta, in uh, in Upper Egypt, to accommodate local tribal and clan interests, so that it won't be you know necessarily the old NDP uh, representative who goes to parliament, but maybe his cousin. Um, that is the sort of of support system that sustained the Mubarak regime for 30 years, and I think it will be a similar type of system, and that's why I tend to think that the Salafists won't do very well, um, but, you know, obviously a lot depends on exactly how the proportional representation aspect of the uh, of the elections is ultimately run, um, and, uh, and the response to, to that kind of outcome, if that's in fact what happens, will be something that's, uh, that's very interesting to watch. You know, as for the future of Islamism, Given polarization in Egypt, that's a—it's an incredibly important question. Look, you know the uh, the. the 
the one thing that I think we always need to pay attention to is the fact that the current regime in Egypt is statist. What that means is it puts a lot of uh, confidence and, and has a lot of faith in the idea that strong state institutions, um, you know, aggressive state institutions even, are the key to stability in the country. The whole problem with that idea, the whole problem with the idea of emphasizing the, the, uh, the centrality of state institutions is that those state institutions fell apart in four days – during the 2011 uprising. Now, Egypt is in a very different place right now. There's certainly much more support for those institutions now than there was four years ago, and that's due to the regional environment. That's due to the very sour experience of brotherhood rule. That's due to the unpopularity of the activists. But we're still talking about a regime that's based on a state that has been broken for a very long time. And if you know, if we see chips in that, um, then you know, you might still have that polarization. But that is where I think you'd see an opening for for Islamism to to reemerge, and 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 you know my view is um, that would not be uh, very pretty because because you would have not only the same kind of existential uh, semi ideological uh, questions at stake here, but you'd also have the legacy of the past uh, four years, and in particular the last year and a half. Just uh, really briefly on the um, on the point of the the Shiites, of course, nothing to to add there. I think. The one the cynical thing I'll say is, is it really shows you the, the extent to which these people are ready to indulge in their uh, rejection of, of the other. And I think really uh, there's a worry. We, we kind of got a sense of it vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, the, the cops um, following the, the revolution. But really that is, that is there, that, that level of, of kind of vitriol and, and rejection that I think you see of the Shiites in private conversations. You, you find that easily towards uh, the cops. But for many – reasons they can't really ex express that um when you when you brought up syria i think it's, it's actually an interesting point that i maybe wanted to make one of the, the beneficial things and this will be my my, my f uh, final remark here about this is that you can then use this as a kind of a blueprint because egypt is, is really the most vibrant case i would argue of islamist debate and then look at these other countries um you know at, at cap we went to tunisia jordan uh, turkey to study syria um to to look at, at islamists in this space uh, and when you when you talk about the view towards the Syrian uh, um, civil war, uh, you know the, the Islamists in Egypt are kind of, you know, having to look at some of their notions about how is it that you can interact with a tyrant. For the uh, for, for, for for some of the, the would be revolutionaries, they, they would go to these um, scholarly and, uh, and some activist Salafis and. Uh, quiet the Salafis and, and tell them, look, you know, this is what you get when you're quiet. You know, Bashar kills you. It's like, well, you know, it's, the answer is simple because he's Shia. But I think, you know, at some point it, it's forcing them to re-examine. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I would venture to say it's, it's been surprisingly um, ambivalent. You know, the, the level of kind of, um, you know, anger that you that you see, for instance, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, question has it really manifested itself when you think about the level of destruction uh, in Syria um, for for the Salafis, especially in Egypt? They've kind of tried to stay away, uh, as opposed to the the ones in the Gulf. The reasons why I'm not I'm not exactly sure. The, and, and the last point is when when I think about about future of of the Syrian Islamists, and I have this understanding that Sam establishes, and I look at these people, I hate to end on a point like this. I mean, you're really into a, a, a wild roller coaster ride of of these uh, these Islamists that are trying to assert themselves in Syria, 
that, that don't even have the qualifications for, uh, for, for, for many of these debates, let alone a, a, an actual vision of, of, of what their own Islamism even means. And this is really, really dangerous. Well, if, if I can offer some last remarks on the questions and, and to conclude the conversation, um, I think it was very interesting that um, a couple of days ago Hamas had its big parade in Gaza and they thanked Iran for its role in supporting the resistance. And you got an immediate reaction of attacks from the Egyptian Salafis on Facebook. Look, Hamas is um, thanking the Shiites. And that's an anathema. That's a complete no-no. And then Brotherhood supporters, who naturally back Hamas, had to defend that position and explain how Hamas was forced to make these statements, but they don't really believe in them. And yeah, they know that the Shiites are very bad people and all of that. So I think it's, it continues to play a role, despite the fact that um, there are no Shiites or very limited numbers of Shiites actually in the country. Whether Egyptians have, um, or the future role of Islamism, whether Egyptians still believe in it, I think um, the reality is that the crisis that gave birth to Islamism continues to uh, dominate the Arab and Muslim world. The question of Bernard Lewis, what went wrong? And how can we catch up with the world? Once we were great civilizations, now we are not continues to manifest itself as the Arab and Muslim world continues to fail to find its place under the sun. Given that the crisis of modernity continues, and given the fact that Islamism continues to be the only ideological answer available to that crisis, I think a failure today of one form of Islamism will only mean the rise of another form of Islamism. And that until either the crisis itself is solved or a coherent alternative ideology to Islamism emerges and dominates the hearts and minds of the people in the region, we are going to continue to face this question of Islamism for a very long time in the future. And on those um, optimistic notes, I would uh, thank the panel and um, thank you all for uh, coming here today and uh, having the conversation.